Today's episode of Art of the Cut is sponsored by ncrawl.com. ncrawl is the web-based platform for managing and rendering end credits, used by over 1,000 film productions, including 42 films at this year's Sundance 2020 Film Festival. Sign up today at ncrawl.com slash AOTC. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cuts Voices from Sundance. My name is Steve Hullfish. I'm a film editor, and I interview my colleagues in film and TV. Today's Voices from Sundance is with Crystal Keiza. She won the San Francisco International Film Festival Special Jury Prize for her short documentary Edgecombe, and she was at Sundance with her latest project called See You Next Time. I saw her on an Adobe panel discussion and was so impressed with her that I had to talk to her. She's a young filmmaker with a lot to say. Uh, tell me about the film that you are here at Sundance with. Yeah, so it's a short documentary called See You Next Time, and it's a portrait of a Chinese nail technician and her black client, and it kind of sits in the hybrid space, I would say, and it reimagines what their relationship could be if it existed outside of the space, or just takes their intimate moments within the nail salon and reimagines them uh, kind of through uh, kind of more a poetic, uh, I would say, like nonfiction storytelling. Um and yeah, it's, we, the nail salon is not too far from where I lived in, live in Brooklyn and was just really interested in, in creating a, a film that was a portrait of how two women of, the, women of color, these two groups, saw each other in space. Um, and so that kind of was the initial question that um, inspired the project. And I heard that you got some kind of feedback about, you know, what's the conflict? And, you know, it's an Asian woman, a black woman, you know, what, but that's not really the way this plays out. Yeah, so my um, my producer Katie Lang and um, and I had a lot of conversations around like the perspective at which we wanted to to approach the story, and I think we very much came to it from a creative understanding of this collaboration as like a true true moment where two communities meet regularly. It's like a very unique space, the nail salon, just like a lot of other beauty spaces. It's like you have this really intimate relationship with someone that only exists in this world and not outside of that space. And so our focus was kind of, you know, really exploring that relationship. And I think when work is made by about communities of color, and I would say particularly about women of color, the, the idea about having tension within our narratives is something that um, I think comes out a lot. And so, you know, there's a lot of, especially in New York City, a lot of conversation around health concerns within nail, the nail salon space or kind of racial tensions between um, Asian folks and black folks, which I think are all really important stories to tell. But with our film, we definitely wanted to focus on a narrative that articulates, you know, the collaborations and moments that we meet that are, aren't those things. And I don't necessarily think it's something that's unique or radical in any way, but I think we're very much used to, in the nonfiction space at least, when we talk about communities of color, entering those conversations from a very specific lens. Did you know what your story was for sure, or did the story develop? And then how did you organize your media to be able to tell the story that you want to tell? Yeah, so the film kind of lives in two spaces. And I thought, and even in pre-production, thought about the observational documentaries non the observational footage and then the moments we, we shot on a, a soundstage with uh and worked with these like kind of choreo more choreographed scenes and so i think entering the film thinking about those spaces separately was really helpful not that they weren't you know in conversation with each other but the you know obviously the pre-production and planning around those two very unique um situations was different um and I think it was really helpful to organize, you know, not only the media, but my 
creative on the project around uh, filming a lot of the documentary footage and then using that in, and, and kind of working with that in the edit and then finding moments that inspired the choreographed moments. So we did a lot of, a, a good amount of production um, was filming the, the observational scenes and then kind of going through and almost scripting and extracting moments to reimagine on the soundstage. So I kind of, they, like it was always in conversation with each other, but it's very much was rooted in the observational moments and trying to articulate things in the poetic scenes that were real to the the documentary footage i think as well because i've i mean i've been in the nail salon space and gotten my nails and i know that experience but it's very different than what their relationship is mm. and did you was there any reshooting done or did, were you once you were done shooting you knew that that's your material um we did some pickups for the observational stuff um what's interesting so our dp um who's a, a close friend of mine we had a lot of conversations about like someone he had never gotten his nails done and and <laughs> so it was this thing of like me explaining like this 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 is it's not going to be a typical doc shoot where you can add like you, there's no repetition to say like there is repetition do that the again I, yeah, I exactly. need a close-up <laughs> exactly so um it was very much like i did i wanted to be as i didn't want to disrupt their process and flow and i think a lot of times as as in directing and and um moving through space as filmmakers especially in the nonfiction space it becomes very easy to like ask life to pause for production and i very much wanted them to be able to move and continue their process in an organic way obviously having like a man standing over them with the mini is not organic but as much as possible like reaffirming that like whatever happens is what's going to happen and if we want something later we'll like have a a day for pickups and we definitely did that and had that time which was really helpful so that was kind of an understanding that we went into the project with of like you know, watching people like YouTube videos of people getting their nails done and like being like, okay, first this happens, then this happens, then this happens. This is where the, you know, this would be an appropriate place to stand or being behind the nail technician or being in front of the client or whatever. Um, and so when we were in the nail salon, having, being prepared for all of those, those moments. I think the, the especially nonfiction, it's like the, the film is made, there's like the stages of how the film is made. It's like you articulate the, your vision in pre-production and then there's like the film is made in, in camera on set and then like remade in the edit. And so um, kind of my vision for the project initially was very different. It's not very different, but my you, you like articulate what kind of what you want to do in the field and then kind of reimagining those moments in the edit, I think were really helpful. And so if, as of such a visual piece, I think having conversations early on with the DP about what it looks like, because the nail salon process is, the nail process is so specific, like visually so specific and not something that we see depicted on screen always. So ensuring that we were in conversation early and kind of making sure the beats were filmed is, was really important to me. Well. On a panel yesterday, I saw a piece of a film, Edgecombe. Did you direct that, or was that edited? I So for both of these pieces, I directed and edited. Um, and uh, and that's a very different project than, than See You Next Time, and in, in, in terms of, I mean, it, that film is based in North Carolina, and very much, I think the process was similar in terms of filming and production and reimagining a lot of the film in the edit um, as well. So... And that film kind of exists in chapters. Um, so there's three generations of residents that are in conversation with each other in the film. Um, and they're connected kind of through the, the t- like time and space. And so I think in production, it's me thinking about like, how are their voices in conversation with each other, knowing that they're not connected and don't know each other and aren't in space together. And so making 
in the edit authentically like linking them whereas it like wouldn't necessarily happen in real life if that makes sense like authentic authentically linking linking their voices and stories in the timeline um and ensuring that their conversations and with each other in the film makes sense for the themes that are kind of represented in the work uh, i want to talk a little bit about the specifics of just the little clip that i saw in, of edgecomb which i just loved so there were two things that i wanted to talk about with edgecomb and uh, was it deacon joiner mm-hmm. so and mr or mr Wee, same mr. name yeah. same guy right mm-hmm. um the, the clip that i saw was about this man and he was speaking about some very specific events which you did not have footage of mm-hmm. correct mm-hmm. but you used not even proxies. It wasn't anything that was supposed to to replace it. You just uh, talk about the footage that you used, mm-hmm. why you used it, and and um, and how you used it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that you know, in in when I first learned to edit, like in high school, it was like being trained. I think there's the a really good practice is you know like show don't tell and the idea of expressing what someone's trying to articulate through the visuals and and expressing things beyond just like what kind of the conventions of how we tell stories right it's like so and so went to the store so we need to see this person walking into the store um and i think with edgecomb was very much um because it focuses so much on memory and time and kind of intergenerational stories i think that it was important to me to use the images of the community and this man's like rich voice and story about his personal experience that's very much embodied in his role in the community. And so it kind of made sense, you know, he's talking about his experiences during growing up in the gym and during Jim Crow and a lot of the trauma that he's experienced. But the film, the, there's an earlier character who I didn't show in the during the panel who is experiencing in a lot of ways how that system was reimagined through the criminal justice system. So it was important to me to represent that, like, you know, although he's articulating all these things that happened in the past, like it's very much rooted in our present understanding of that community and showing kind of like the portraits of the of, of folks just like within the neighborhoods or or that scene where where the where the, the parade is happening and the kids are the Christmas parade is happening and the kids are marching through the streets like like that's not necessarily like the Jim Crow South or like very much been a choice for my other filmmaker to use archival footage or to make the edit different. But I think it was important to make that thematic connection of, you know, just because especially within stories about black folks concentrating on the past and, and the things that communities have been through doesn't mean it's not tethered to present day experiences. So it became important to the edit to try to articulate that as best as I could. Yeah, that's exactly what I was talking about. So he's talking about, in the clip that we're referencing, he's talking about a a bunch of kids marching in protest, Mm -hmm. but you use a parade Mm -hmm. and a bunch of footage from Beauty Salon. Was there anything else? Yeah, I mean, so we did a lot of filming um, of just like walking around the community and and, and asking folks if we could take their portraits. and we went to a bunch of different biz. I had like a li- I had made a list before we had gone down of like different businesses that I wanted to like stop by and 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 meet with folks. And that's how we ended up in the hair salon. We went to a barber shop. And so there's like a mo- for example, there's a moment where he talks about had the segregation of businesses in his community, and we kind of entered the space of like black business in present day. And there's this like image of an open sign, and we like enter this barber shop. And those are folks within his community and folks that look like him that are experienced that are you know business owners and act like a part of this community um that are so close to the history that he's describing and uh he tells a story about when a 
that was happening uh, in his community. And the kids were in a confrontation with the police and he like inter interceded. We were there during, during the holidays. And so we filmed this uh, Christmas parade. And the idea of just like young black folks, like marching but for a very different reason and ha and having the space to like be a part of that community community activity is also in time not that distant from what he experienced as well those are the same streets those are descendants of those folks as well so making those connections was important we'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with see you next time editor crystal keiza i'm really excited to have ncrawl as a sponsor if you've ever been through the end credits process in Final Post, you already know why someone had to create this product. What's interesting, though, is how they went about it. Their cloud render engine turns around preview renders in minutes and 2K and 4K renders in about half an hour. The end crawl render engine is on demand 24-7, so even if you're in a late night editing session, you can sign into your project, fix that typo, and add that late breaking special thanks, and with one click, get your new render fast. And here's the best part, renders are unlimited. Ncrawl has a freemium tier and they offer free personal demo projects to all working industry professionals. Right now there's actually a wait list, but if you sign up now with our special link, you can jump to the front of the line. That's ncrawl.com slash AOTC. Again, that's ncrawl.com slash AOTC. And now back to my interview with See You Next Time editor and director, Crystal Keza. I worked for Oprah for 10 years as an editor, and we had a very firm rule that you only cut to someone on camera at a critical moment. You didn't just go, oh, I don't have anything else. I'm going to sit on this guy's face because I've got it shot. No, you only went to the face when it was going to reveal something, and I felt like you did that with, with uh, Mr. Wee. Can you talk about making those choices of when to put him on camera and when not to have him on camera? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's so much power in his silence. I very much wanted the film to live in the experience that I had speaking with him because we had a really long interview and he gave so much of his time. But the most powerful moments to me are when he lost the words to articulate what, how he was feeling. And so as he's telling his story, there's a moment where there was this, like this release of these memories on camera. And I think you're hearing him talk talking about these things and seeing the community, but then seeing his face in the silence and really remembering and connecting with the experiences that he had, I thought was the most powerful way to articulate. And there's also so much on his face too, and so much history and kind of in, imbued in just his image on, scre on screen. And I think, using people's physical image in film, I think it has to be done with a lot of care and, and not for the sake of filling space. But, you know, in that particular portion of the film, his lack of language to articulate his experience for me was the most important. That was like the critical moment of revealing his image and his connection to the community in the most kind of authentic way. Uh, I have one other question. Uh -huh. One of the things that came up in that panel was mentorship. And you said that you'd had a very important mentor in your life. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that mentorship and how that person found you and how they helped you grow? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've had so many people play that role. I've like, so I've had so many folks in some way or another been that like level of support that I needed. I think that my injury into to, to filmmaking was in high school through a nonfiction film program, and I had there were like kids in the film program that were older than me that would come to like different classes and present about like kind of pitching up applying to this program and I found what I found most interesting about 
that whole experience is that they weren't going to like students that were interested in technology or super like media savvy. They were like in English classes for like bookworms and people like to read or like going to art classes. And I I think you the director of that program was like was a huge mentor for me in, in high school, and like early on in college. And, and we're still very um, close today, um, was just mostly interested in storytelling and was like, these are the tools in which you can tell stories but um was mostly instrumental in like just helping me find my voice as like a young person and using film as a medium but not necessarily you know there are a ton of of young people that have gone through his classes that you know end up doing other things outside of the film world but he was really instrumental about introducing film as like a craft about how you construct story and then giving us the resources and like that was like where I when I first learned how to edit and how when I first learned how to use cameras and and conduct an interview and was just like treated my voice and my experience is very important and I think or having that early on in terms of my experience with film was really important definitely attribute a lot of the decisions that I've made to having that initial experience did he see a storyteller in you what do you think that he felt or was he just giving that gift of himself to all of his students? I mean, I think he definitely gives it to all of his students. And we definitely had a, I was like searching for that thing in that space in, when I was in high school. And it was just like such a unique experience to be able to like have an hour in your school day just committed to like what I at the time like loved most, which is just like hearing people's stories and trying to figure out my own voice and where I fit in and you know like everyone's like super awkward and and uncomfortable in high school and I just like felt completely free of those restrictions that I felt in other classrooms and we did very early on have conversations about the fact that you know thinking about it now that there's some distance I think there was a connection where he realized like this relationship is really valuable and having that support is really valuable and and spent the extra time investing in my interests and like was always one to, to, to like make the time and space or like I remember I just just like wanted to be in the film class all the time and like worked with my curriculum and academic to ensure that I could spend as much time there as, as possible and um, just made himself available which I think that's it's such a small thing but as, an, as like an educator or someone that's mentoring just like making yourself available to someone that hasn't necessarily had that support I think was really really valuable and it was it wasn't you know had really amazing teachers throughout high school but it was a really unique experience in in converging like education and like there was a, a place of like discovering my passion and what I wanted to do long term I was back home recently and like met for for dinner and it was like this really strange thing of like this full circle moment of all the like things that I told him I would want to do when I was in high school like coming to full circle and fruition and him like actually be able to see my work and still like give, being critical and giving feedback and giving me notes even you're so going that. to Sundance yeah yeah um but but yeah it was definitely great great to have that but he probably saw something in you don't you think that there was a you were showing a spark or you were showing a desire or something that he saw that he was this is a worthwhile person that I should pour in yeah I mean I remember definitely we've talked about it before there was a, a moment early on when I was in his class where he like asked me to come to his office and he was basically like I don't want you to get a big head but I really think that this is something that you sh like that if you really worked hard this is something that, that you can do and um should feel comfortable embracing as something that you're talented at and it wasn't the first I mean he I think I also like kind of love that he started the conversation with don't think this is going to make like, make you any like more favorable in my class. But I want to let you know that I'm supporting you and I'm here if you like 
it, the class is here, but also me as a resource to ensure that you are getting what you want out of this experience is also available. And so that was really important. And also, I mean, I the college that I went to, very he was very instrumental in that decision as well. Like he had received like a media mentor award from the institution. And I was not at all interested in going to school in upstate New York. And I had like not even had that school on my radar. Where did you go? Went to Ithaca College. Okay. Um, I went to SUNY Brockport. Did you? Yeah. So I, I was like, is New York anything besides New York City like, I had no <laughs> perception and um and he was like you and it was not some a decision Ithaca I is not New York City <laughs> yeah it was definitely a the first person that encouraged me to take risks with my decisions and treated me like an adult and like and was like really encouraging me to apply for the scholarship program and I was like I definitely not gonna get it and he's like just apply and like that's how I ended up being able to study nonfiction in school so just having that person that believes in you before you have like the words or the energy to like really articulate and believe in yourself I think um, having that early on was really important and even having that person that I can call on now like if there's ever if I'm ever in that space where I'm like doubting myself like that's a person I can still call on to be brutally honest with me, but also like very, very encouraging and affirming um, of kind of the path that I've chosen. How do your parents feel about this? I think you mentioned your first generation Rwandan. Mm-hmm. Ugandan. Ugandan. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Ugandan. First generation Ugandan. How do your parents feel about this? You certainly succeeded, and, and if they're listening to this, you have what it takes. I mean, you. I just loved watching what you oh, edited. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, my parents are super supportive. I mean, when I was working on short films in high school they were always driving me around and carrying camera (laughs) gear and I mean I definitely don't know if filmmaking was like a part of their understanding of like what my trajectory would be or like vision for their American dream but like are always in the whatsapp group telling every sharing every article (laughs) every screener link so I'm really fortunate to have that support as well because as soon as I they noticed it was something that I like latched on to like was we're never if anything, have just been like pushing and, and finding ways to support that. Um, so having, and, and all of my siblings and stuff as well, were, I like have a short film from high school that my young, younger sisters interviewed as like an expert on something. So like, <laughs> it's a very much was a family effort. So. Um, Got it. Yeah, my, I have a daughter probably your age and it, whatever their passion is, that's what you want to support as exactly. a parent, I think. Last question, uh, Premier, it was your choice for, has it always been your choices in NLE or have you used other ones or why Premier? I think it's a super intuitive and um, premiere is something that was introduced like when I was like later on in my in college. So um, I was familiar with it and had used it, but just like had it. It's like, you know, very much editing, like riding a bike, like having the knowing the functions and, and all that stuff is really important. So it was super easy to come back to. I, you know, all the work that I've directed, I've mostly been editing myself. And I think ha- it being empowered people to do that is really great as well. So there's so many complicated things in making a film that just having the ease of a platform that um is accessible and also feeling comfortable to pass work on like if i don't want to finish an edit passing it off to someone and knowing it's organized and clean and seamless and that we're kind of all speaking the same language too is, is really helpful what were you cutting on in high school and college final cut final cut yeah. thank you so much for a great thank interview you. it was really nice talking to yes, you yes thank you so much Thanks to listening to Art of the Cut's Voices from Sundance podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Crystal Keiza. I'm Steve Holfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, 
Give us a review on your favorite podcasting platform so others can find us. Then follow me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Steve Hallfish. And make sure to tell a filmmaking or film-loving friend.